Hi, everyone, and welcome. I'm Mark C. Crowley, and this is the Lead from the Heart podcast. I'm not sure if there's a normal path to becoming a Stanford University Medical School neurology professor and a world-class brain surgeon, but I'm certain my guest today didn't have it. Dr. James Doty grew up in the high desert of Southern California on public assistance. And as you'll soon hear him describe in greater detail, his parents were unable to provide any sense of safety and security, and his life was headed down a path toward mediocrity, if not failure. But one day in a magic shop, Dr. Doty had a serendipitous meeting with a woman who took a liking to him. Sensing the pain and stress he was experiencing, she taught him self-compassion, self-control, and mindfulness techniques. And by leveraging these tools along with a new and empowering mindset, he found a way to transcend his difficult upbringing to not only graduate from college and medical school, but to also discover he possessed an extraordinary talent for performing surgery on human brains. Now, I learned about Dr. Doty's remarkable journey last year by reading his New York Times bestselling autobiography, Into the Magic Shop, a neurosurgeon's quest to discover the mysteries of the brain and the secrets of the heart. But it wasn't just his uncommon and transcendent life experience that I found of interest. In his book, Dr. Doty, a brain expert, you'll remember, also revealed that the human heart plays a far greater role in motivating human choices and reasons than we've ever known. And so today on our podcast, I'll be asking Dr. Doty to share some of the specific wisdom that helped him transcend his difficult childhood, and then we'll explore the new science which shows the human heart and mind are connected. And what this means for the future of workplace leadership is really the focus for our conversation. And so it's an honor for me to welcome Dr. James Doty. Well, thank you for having me. It's uh, really a pleasure to be with you. Well, I'm thrilled to be with you. And just to get us started here, childhood for many of us sets the direction for the rest of our lives. So can you fill us in on some of the key details of your upbringing? Well, to give you a little and the listeners a little of the backstory, I grew up in poverty. Uh, my father was an alcoholic. Uh, my mother had had a stroke when I was a child and was partially paralyzed and had a seizure disorder and became chronically depressed and ultimately attempted suicide multiple times. Additionally, we were on public assistance essentially my entire childhood. So while I certainly don't think that is the worst experience a child can have, and clearly I'm sure there are listeners of yours who've had profoundly worse experiences, but nonetheless, those types of situations we know now can have a profound negative effect on a child growing up. In fact, there's now an area of pediatrics that has developed a criteria where you can determine the potential well-being or success of a child based on these issues. It's called adverse childhood experiences, and there's actually a way in which you can measure, and that will determine the likelihood of success, failure, well-being, etc. Alcohol or drug abuse, violence, poverty, mental illness, all of these contribute to this negative type of environment. And unfortunately, overcoming those types of things is very, very challenging for anyone, and certainly especially a child. So how do you overcome that? And sadly, as you were pointing out about childhood, 
what happens in your childhood often predicts what happens in your future. And unfortunately, this type of pain, suffering, these type of wounds which you have sustained, for many people stay with them their entire lives and are never addressed. This leads to oftentimes drug or alcohol abuse. Certainly, it can contribute to mental illness and a general sense of unhappiness because you are blaming yourself for the situation. And then this leads, of course, to bad decisions regarding actions. It can lead to bad decisions regarding partners. And overall, it can destroy your future. And it can take a child who had potential and destroy whatever potential they have. Well, in your case, obviously, you've transcended these odds. So how did you accomplish that? In other words, you have a superior accomplishment list in your career. And if you look back in the predictability based on your upbringing, none of the things that you've accomplished could have been achieved by just the statistics. So the insight that I'm looking for here, I suppose, is that we're all sort of operating from our childhood selves in some way, shape, or form, and yet you dealt with some real adversity and overcame that. And I'm wondering what wisdom you might have to share around that. Well, first of all, all of us suffer in different ways. And sometimes we look at people who we think have all the advantages. And the reality is, if you really sit with them, many of those individuals have suffered deeply. What saved me, if you will, is that at the age of 12, I met an individual and through the interactions I had with that individual, it completely changed my perspective. And I think there are two points here. One is every one of us has the potential to interact with another and potentially change their lives and alleviate their suffering. In my case, it was a woman who was sitting in a magic shop that was owned by her son, and she just happened to be minding the store, if you will, as her son was doing an errand, and her and I started talking. And at the end of a fairly short conversation, she said to me, I really like you, and I think I could teach you something that could change your life. Now, how often do we get anyone telling us something like that? Almost never. But I was certainly very unhappy, uh, in fact, miserable. I was becoming a delinquent. I didn't believe that I had a future. And over a six-week period meeting with this woman every day, she gave me insights and taught me things that changed my entire perspective of how I saw the world and taught me some techniques that allowed me to develop resilience and look at the world in a different way through different types of practices. One of the first things she made me understand is that one thing that was causing my own suffering was how I processed events around me. As an example, when we see a negative event occur, that event, when it occurs, neither has a positive or negative. It's not black or white. It's simply an event. But what many of us do is we put our own emotional content to that event, and then that is what goes into our memory. And every time we bring that memory back up, it's not the event 
it's not the facts, it's the emotional content that is brought up. And if that is negative, every time you think of that, you have negative feelings. And negative feelings have a huge, huge negative effect on your physiology. It oftentimes for many will stimulate our fright or flight mechanism, that part of our nervous system, our autonomic nervous system called the sympathetic nervous system. And that's where not only a lot of suffering arises, but a lot of the negative aspects from a physiologic point of view in terms of our health and well-being. So that was one of the first things she made me realize. One of the next things she made me realize is that my parents actually were doing the best they could. Oftentimes, we put into place this narrative that my father didn't like me, he ignored me, et cetera, et cetera. And the reality was my parents did not have the tool set or the resources to deal with their own suffering and pain. And I felt that though their actions were causing me suffering, and in fact they were, but understanding their own pain and suffering, understanding their own inability to deal with that allowed me to forgive them and dissipated any harsh feelings I had for them and allowed me to love them. And so when I began looking at the world in that way, understanding that events oftentimes are just events, understanding that oftentimes the actions of others are not connected to me at all, as I tell people, when I started looking at the world in a different way, when I started reacting a different way, then the world started reacting differently to me. And that fundamental observation changed the trajectory of my life. Is there some foundational thought that goes through your mind when you're reminding yourself of this? What's the reframe that maybe even was taught to you by this woman in the magic shop all these years ago? This woman in the magic shop, whose name was Ruth, changed the trajectory of my life. And while I talked about the fact that she allowed me to see the world with more clarity, there are four other things that she taught me which were also critical to my success. One was how to be present. What I didn't realize when I first met her, that I was filled with anxiety, with fear. It was anxiety and fear about an unknown future. It was recollecting memories of events that caused anxiety and fear as well. And when you were in either of those states, it is not possible to be present. And being present is what allows us to learn. It's what allows us to connect with others. And it is what allows us, if you will, to be our best selves. And we all know, having been in the presence of people, if you will, who are present, the difference. When someone is present, they look you in the eye. They're not distracted. They're looking at you. They see you. And they're listening to every word you say or don't say. So that was the first thing. She taught me to relax my body because I didn't realize that I had this immense amount of tenseness within my muscles 
based on my own anxiety levels. And all of that prevented me from being present. Once I was able to accomplish that task, the next thing she taught me was the reality that many of us, if not most of us, have a narrative going on in our head. And it is a narrative that we believe is us, and it is a narrative that is usually negative. And the reason that is, is that as a species, negative things stick to us much more than positive things. It's just the way we are hardwired. And we process then statements that are negative about us. And we will tell ourselves we're not good enough, we're not smart enough, etc. And we say it over and over to ourselves. And what happens is every time we make a statement like that, that I can't do something, it's not possible, by definition, it is not. And what an individual does with that type of thinking is, one, they create this negative physiologic response when those statements are made. But more importantly, what they do is they lay down a brick and another brick that creates a prison for themselves And they don't even know they've created the prison. And you cannot escape from a prison if you don't know you're in a prison. So understanding that reality changed everything. And this is how, in some ways, mindfulness-based stress reduction works because it teaches you not to dwell on these negative thoughts. And that prevents the negative physiologic response. But the problem with that is that it stops there. And while you could argue that compassion or some of these other issues are implicit in those types of practices, I don't believe they are. I believe there should be an explicit aspect of this. I'm not sure I know what you mean. What happens is that when you beat yourself up all the time, it is limiting. And we have found that when one gives themselves compassion, this idea of self-compassion based on the work of Kristen Neff and others, when you're able to be kind to yourself, when you're able to be able to talk to yourself in an affirmative, positive way, it actually results in you being able to be much more kind to others around you. When you're kind to yourself, when you're self-affirming, when you give yourself love, When you accept yourself, when you understand that those parts of you which you find negative, your shadow, if you will, you cannot escape that. Every one of us has this. When you accept that and still love yourself, then that changes how you interact and view the world. So what she taught me was to have insight into that negative self-talk, if you will, but also teach me that I could change that negative self-talk to one of positivity. So once I was self-compassionate, it allowed me to be compassionate with others and appreciate that everyone is suffering. So once I was able to see that everyone is suffering, that everyone can benefit from kindness, love, acceptance, be non-judgmental, that changed the energy that I had around me and the interactions I had with people. And that fundamentally is what has allowed me to be successful. And then the last thing that she taught me was a technique of defining my intention. 
and utilizing the tools that many athletes have now used and which science has proven creates the environment for success and manifesting your potential. And that is that when you utilize your senses, when you repeat to yourself your goals and intentions, when you write them down, when you visualize them, what this does is this puts those intentions into your subconscious. And some would argue that 85 to 90% of our actions actually occur at a subconscious level. And when you're able to put those processes, your intentions and goals, your subconscious then takes advantage of your environment to create those situations that maximize your ability to manifest your intentions. So those were the four tricks, if you will. And I say that because I learned this from this woman in the magic shop. Well, this woman surely packed a lot of profound wisdom into six weeks. And while you were speaking, I was jotting down some of the things that you said. I think five of them were just incredibly provocative. So let me just read these. One, everyone has the potential in their interactions with other people to, in effect, change their lives. It's just like absolutely true from a leadership standpoint that we forget that. Number two, events don't have inherent meaning, so we must be vigilant to never assign negativity to experiences where it never existed in the first place. Number three, you said the fact that you were able to forgive and even love your parents once you came to the understanding that they did their very best and that their actions, the ones that harmed you, I suppose most, were never about you. Um, that's just really a profound understanding and life-changing for people who grew up with a rough upbringing. Number four, being present allows us to be our best selves. And number five, before we can ever give compassion to others, we must learn to give it to ourselves, something I've worked on my entire life. So um, thank you. All added up, I have to say, this was quite an education, again, that you received at a critical time in your life. And I just appreciate your sharing all of this. And I'd like to change gears now uh, completely and move into something important that you wrote in your book. And let me read this quote. You said, most people have no idea that the heart has anything to do with influencing human choices, decisions, and motivations. And since most people believe the heart is just a blood pump, can you take us through the science that proves the heart and mind work together in a unifying intelligence? Well, what we know in regard to the evolution of our species is that to have what we call theory of mind, to have complex language, to have abstract thinking, it required our species to be cared for and nurtured for 10, 12, 15 years And that resulted in the creation of the mirror neuron system, which requires that our offspring model their behavior from our behavior. So to answer specifically, then, how does this all work? We have what is called the autonomic nervous system, which is a, if you will, super highway that allows many of our body functions to work at a subconscious level. And this is manifested through something called the vagus nerve, which is the 10th cranial nerve and is in the brainstem, but connects throughout the brain, and then has representation through every organ in the body, but especially in the heart. 
and this is a two-way superhighway, if you will. And when we exhibit fear or anxiety, it stimulates the sympathetic nervous system, which is our flight or fight response, and results in a physiologic response. Your heart rate increases, your pupils dilate, you have the release of stress hormones such as cortisol, your immune system is depressed, your blood pressure goes up, blood is diverted from your abdomen and your gastrointestinal tract, your skeletal muscle to allow you to run. And so all of these physiologic events occur when the sympathetic nervous system is stimulated. Conversely, when you are in this rest or digest mode and feel relaxed, feel comfortable, this then stimulates the vagus nerve and the parasympathetic nervous system so that your executive control areas of your brain that are associated with discerning thought, creativity, access to memory and experience, all of those things actually function at their best. So when a human being feels as though they are being cared for and nurtured, their parasympathetic nervous system kicks in and their physiology works at its best. Cardiac function is improved, peripheral vascular function is improved, immune system is boosted, the expression of inflammatory hormones that are associated with a lot of chronic diseases, those are inhibited, blood pressure is decreased, and all of these things that really are positive in terms of health and well-being are working at their best. And so this is the brain-heart connection. We would not have survived as a species without this heart-brain superhighway, which in some ways allows us to be our best selves, both from a mental functioning point of view, but also from a physiologic point of view. So if I can put a framework around this and sort of take the science that you've just explained, in listening to you, my understanding is, is that there's, first of all, a very clear connection between the heart and the mind and that they're both sending signals back and forth to each other. And then when people are feeling, I suppose it's positive emotions and feelings along the lines of the way you just described it, that that effectively puts people into their optimal level of performance. Is that what you're saying? And if so, then does it call upon us as leaders and managers to find ways to put people into the similar situation, knowing that it puts people into this optimal level of performance? Well, I think that's exactly right, and that's what we're finding. And we can look at this from a variety of domains. You mentioned the business domain. I'll give you an interesting example. Many of the tech companies here in Silicon Valley are self-insured in terms of healthcare expenditures. The greatest expenditure of healthcare dollars is related to stress, anxiety, and depression and the associated mind-body disconnects as a result, which are headache, low back pain, gastrointestinal dysfunction, and a whole variety of other maladies that clearly, clearly have a direct association with stress. When you do surveys of employees at these companies, it is not unusual to see that 50 to 70% are disengaged while at work, which is extraordinary. And you can imagine when you're not engaged, when you're stressed, when you're anxious, you are not either being as productive or as creative as you could be. And this has a huge, huge impact 
on the bottom line. There is a false notion that if you stay at work for many hours, working 8, 10, 12, 14, 16 hours a day, that somehow you're going to be more productive. And in fact, it's the opposite. A lot of the tech companies here, and it's also prevalent in many other companies, create this environment where employees are afraid if they don't have availability for calls and emails into the night, if they're not working on weekends on projects, that somehow they're going to be judged as not team players or not very good employees. But in fact, multiple studies have demonstrated that it's not the case whatsoever. In fact, Google spent millions and millions of dollars trying to determine who makes the best leaders, who makes the best leaders of teams. If they had just called me, I could have answered them. (laughs) (laughs) No survey needed. Exactly. And remember, there was a time when Google only hired I think from the 15 quote-unquote best schools in the United States, and you had to be in the top 5% of your class. This ridiculous notion that where you went to school and your grade point average had some impact on success. And what they found was interesting, but not surprising. One was there was zero correlation between what college you went to. And remember, by this time, they had acquired several companies. So they had senior managers who actually didn't go to these best schools or had these types of GPAs. So what they found was there was zero correlation between where you went to college and your grade point average in terms of success within Google. Zero, nothing. And in fact, it even extended into the era of domain experience. Little if any correlation related to domain experience as far as an individual leading a team. What were the most important things? What people want as human beings, whether it's in the health environment or other, and what makes them function at their best is feeling safe, feeling that their opinion matters, feeling that the person that they're interacting with cares for them in an authentic, sincere way, creating an environment where you were not judged where failure is allowed. And when those are present in a work environment, magic happens. Productivity increases, engagement increases, creativity is increased, and people are happy. Now, one of the problems sometimes, though, is that, and I'm sure you know, of course, that mindfulness and these different types of practices are now being incorporated into the work environment, as a way of getting people to feel better or decrease their stress. But while that will work on some level, if you don't do something about a toxic work environment, ultimately that is not going to be successful. Well, let me ask you, because one of the interesting things that you're saying here is that very 
untraditional ways, not only untraditional ways, but ways that we've always believed were the antithesis of what would drive success. Caring about people, demonstrating that you value them, that they matter to you, this kind of nurturing that you're describing, making people feel safe, for example, is very antithetical to traditional leadership theory, which says, you know, squeeze as much out of people as possible and make them feel that they're easily replaceable. So Google, one of the most enlightened organizations on the planet, needed to do a study, and they come out and they discover that caring about people and making them feel these kinds of support, this deep feeling of safety, security, that they can make mistakes, that they can feel vulnerable, that people around them are there to care about them. How do you convince somebody to take the science that you know for certain and apply it to how they're actually managing? Because this is, in my opinion, the biggest hurdle there is in business today. Well, part of the problem is the people who get chosen to be managers. And that comes from an antiquated process where oftentimes the most ruthless individual who's manipulative and non-caring, if you will, crawls over the backs of other people to get ahead. And if that is the person who is the leader, uh, that individual sees the world through those types of eyes. So typically managers under that person are mere images of that person. And as a result, they treat people uh, a different way. People are cogs in a machine. They don't feel that those people are of value. They can be replaced. And they believe, and it's true in the short term, when you threaten people and make them uncomfortable, they can be more productive. But we know through a variety of studies with different species and with humans, that while ruthlessness allows for short-term success, long-term survival of a species is associated with cooperative behavior. And it's true in companies. And you see companies that utilize these types of processes to improve employee productivity, decrease healthcare costs, decrease human resources costs, and they're wildly successful. That being said, of course, there are companies that still use some of these, again, antiquated practices, and they seemingly are successful. But again, you also then look at turnover, you look at health costs, you look at human resources costs, and those are eating into their profits. I'll give you one quick example of an experience that was shared with me by a CEO of a major corporate entity. And his company was doing well, it was not doing great. And what he did was something called a 360 review by an outside entity. And what amazingly came out of this was that on this 360 review, his managers and himself got horrible scores. And in fact, the person running the study said to him, in our 15 years of doing this, no one has received worse scores than you. And by the nature of how this person saw himself and managed his business, his first response was, this is ridiculous. You don't know what you're doing. You know, I'm successful, et cetera, et cetera. And he was going to fire them. But he went home that night and he said to his wife, you know, I did this study and this is ridiculous. You know, my management team, they got horrible scores and they told me that I had the worst scores. And he said, what do you think of that? And she said, they're right. I've been telling you this for 15 years and you've never listened. And this hit him like a thunderbolt. 
And he actually went through a profound process of reflection and got a coach, completely changed how he managed the company. And they went from doing well to doing fantastic and leading in their area of expertise and a complete turnaround in terms of employee surveys and employee engagement. To be told that you're the worst ever obviously had to be startling to a guy who's running a big company. But I think many of us don't realize our limitations. What is it that keeps us from self-awareness? Well, I think that none of us want to hear bad news. And whether you're a dictator or someone who does bad things, every time in the morning we have to look in the mirror. And if we really believed we were horrible, we would not be able to do that. So we create a narrative that justifies our behavior. And everyone does this to some extent or another. I mean, as an example, every one of us lies on some level. Some people do it significantly more than others for all sorts of reasons. And I think that unless you're able to sort of create that justifying, it would be hard to survive. But like I said, sometimes it's pathologic. And we have to, one, understand this reality, understand the nature of biases that occur in terms of how we interact. Because if you have a disconnect to how you think of yourself versus how you are that's so profound, it causes severe cognitive dissonance. As an example, there's a wonderful book called Mistakes Were Made But Not By Me by two psychologists, and they interview dictators. Every dictator denies being a dictator. Their narrative is, you know, I was special and chosen by my country to do these things. And yes, bad things happened, but I was not responsible. These things had to happen to preserve the government or whatever. But I'm really a good person. And these are people who are like documented murderers who've done horrible, heinous things. And so those people justify it. So you can imagine how much easier it is when it's trying to justify what we would perceive comparatively as a very small lie. So that's how it happens. But if you constantly question yourself, if you surround yourself by people who you have given permission to question you, if you surround yourself by people who are smart and insightful, the likelihood of that happening to that degree is much, much less because you are held accountable and you want to be held accountable. And that changes everything versus surrounding yourself with weaker personalities, with people who aren't as smart, surrounding yourself with yes people. So, Dr. Doty, I'd like to take a break from these very big questions that we're talking about and transition to something that we call the heartbeat round. We do this with every guest, and it's amazing the amount of feedback that I've gotten from listeners saying that it really gives me a great understanding of who they are, even greater than the normal questions. So I'm going to ask you 15 quick questions and ask you to answer them in a heartbeat. Are you ready? Sure. First one, newspaper or magazine you never miss reading? The New York Times, Wall Street Journal, The Atlantic, The Economist, and probably, believe it or not, Vanity Fair. <laughs> All right. That's a lot. The quality you admire most in other people? Generosity and compassion. The activity that makes you personally come alive? Being present. Greatest book you've ever read? There are two, actually. One is The Poetry of Rumi, and the other is 
is Carlos Castaneda. Carrot or stick? Carrot. The best surgeons you know all share this one quality in common. Compassion. The life lesson you wish you'd learned earlier in life. Compassion. World leader of any era, business, government, spiritual, etc., that you most admire. The Dalai Lama. The quality that derails the most leadership careers, in your opinion. Fear. All-time favorite movie. Casablanca. Greatest piece of advice you've ever received. Be authentic. Favorite band or singer? Oh, wow. Led Zeppelin. Hmm. Quote that best captures your life philosophy. Treat others how you wish to be treated. Skill improvement you're working on right now. Self-honesty. And finally, what's the proudest accomplishment of your life? Being able to love. Thank you, Dr. Doty. Clearly, compassion is a driving force in your life. These are very intriguing answers to your heartbeat round. I want to go back to something you said a minute ago, and I'm actually knowing by asking it that I'm taking a risk. But in your opinion, based on the feedback or the, the analysis that Google did based on their study, do you have any reason to believe that they've changed how they're managing people? Have they become more supportive, caring, nurturing, all the different things that you were describing? Is that who they're looking for and who they're hiring now for managers? No. Wow. I think, and I'm sure somebody who works for Google who hears this in management, and I know many of these people <laughs> might argue with me, I would say that is their desired intention they know what this study has shown, but I would not say it has been completely embraced by the company. You know, it's hard. I mean, one is, as an example, and I think you appreciate this, many of the best engineers or best people in computer science or artificial intelligence, et cetera, don't have the highest level of emotional intelligence, and in fact, some of these people are on the autism spectrum disorder. And, you know, many of these people have a difficult time judging the emotional states of others. So if that's a person who's a potential manager, it could be very challenging. And so while they may be extraordinarily successful in the context of the requirement of that their job, leading people might be significantly more challenging. And I don't think it's because Google, uh, and I don't mean to pick on Google at all, but we're using that as an example. You know, it's, I think it's hard for some of these tech companies to understand this and try to create that environment. They will all say they do. But, you know, as an example, I have patients who are Apple employees, and these people are profoundly stressed people. I mean, who, you know, get 30 or 40 emails, you know, while I'm talking to them. They're called on weekends, two or three in the morning. I mean, I had a woman telling me I had operated on her for a back issue and she was in recovery. And she's getting texts from her manager that require, you know, her to show up and function and do a lot of stuff. And she's not even out of the hospital, Right. And this is, again, needless stuff. You know, this isn't life and death, frankly, and it's not necessary. And all it does is create to a more toxic environment. And in this woman's case, she retired early. She was getting an ulcer. She was anxious. She was not healing as fast as she should have. 
And it was all because of the immense amount of stress on her because she was not at work and they were somehow expecting her to continue to work even though she had just had surgery. And so I think that not necessarily intentionally because I'm sure if you talk to Tim Cook and explain the situation, they go, oh my God, that's horrible, that shouldn't happen. It happens every day. It happens at Google, it happens at Facebook, and it happens at a number of tech companies and just companies in general. So I think that you have to aggressively incorporate this type of sensitivity and knowledge and make it from the top all the way down that that is the acceptable behavior and the other is not and you should not be doing it. So you're in a room of 100 CEOs from the top companies, let's just say across the world, because we've got people listening in from 70 different countries so far. So you're speaking to people all over the world. And let's just assume every one of them is a CEO. And they're listening to this and they're like, well, everybody's telling me that these tech companies are so far advanced and evolved in the way they're managing and leading. And I'm not hearing that here. What would you tell them in terms of your best guidance, knowing this mind-heart connection, knowing what the research shows, knowing how completely convinced you are of how to manage people, what would your advice be to them? How should they be running their companies and what would give them the greatest increase in their engagement, productivity, ultimately profitability and success? Well, I would say, and, and let me preface this by stating that I've been studying this for a decade, that a book that I am the senior editor of that was just published by Oxford University Press called The Handbook of Compassion Science and a wide amount of literature, both in the business domain, the healthcare domain, et cetera, demonstrates without question that everything I said is absolutely correct. So the question is, what do you wish to believe? When a company through management creates a trusting environment where individuals know that if a statement is made, it is truth, where there's transparency, where there is acceptance of diversity, where there is a sense that what the individual is doing has meaning. As an example, if you're, uh, let's say, working at a company that manufactures a health care device, that's pretty easy to connect. If you're working for a company that may just make a widget that you can't see any connection to making the world a better place, well, if you can then create a situation where you sit there and say, well, we allow our employees to volunteer, or we encourage volunteering, or we do matching funds to charities, any of those things give people a sense of meaning and purpose. And that's what drives people. Meaning, purpose, psychological safety, authenticity, trust. Those are the keys that if you can incorporate those into your corporate mandate, mission, or ethos, you will be wildly successful beyond your dreams. It's just you have to truly believe it. You have to live it. You have to breathe it. You have to do it. And I can guarantee you, based on every bit of data you have, that when you do that, you will be much more successful than you would be otherwise. Perfect. 
Well, I can't thank you enough. One of the things that totally impressed me here, I think I I have to admit that I had an anticipation of an entirely different conversation, but you're so incredibly well informed on the issues that we really wanted to talk about, which has to do with how do you really inspire people to perform and how do you get people to feel really committed and loyal and highly productive. And you have a vast knowledge, but your knowledge does something that I think makes it more compelling to me is that it accesses your research into this heart-mind connection and things like empathy and compassion. And that's a different world for most people. So I have to thank you. This has been a delight. And uh, my second time with you, I've learned a tremendous amount. And I I thank you very much, doctor. Well, listen, thank you again. And I would just close by saying everything that I have said relates simply to love and being able to love unconditionally. That is what people want. When you can give that to them, be non-judgmental, being accepting, being encouraging, that changes everything. Well, that is a big part of our thesis here, which is love your people. And it's not romantic love. It's not Valentine's love. It's the highest energy on the planet. So I'm grateful to you for closing it out that way. And thank you very much again, sir. No problem. Melissa, you take care. I look forward to us having another conversation. And uh, I wish you the best day today. Thank you very much, sir. Before we go, I wrote a LinkedIn article about Dr. Doty last year titled, Why a World-Class Brain Surgeon Believes the Heart Matters Most in Leadership. And if you're interested in reading that, you can find it on my website, leadfromtheheart.com. And also want to remind you that Dr. Doty's book is available on Amazon and, of course, wherever books are sold. And as always, I can't end without thanking my supporting crew, sound engineer Eric Oz, website designer Randy Yunt. And my sincere thanks go to you, my listeners, as well. A friend of mine told me recently, I think he meant this to be encouraging, that most podcasts fail before their 10th episode and simply because they can't find an audience. So please know how very grateful I am that you're here and even introducing the Lead from the Heart podcast to others. Until next time, I leave you with a reminder that when you lead from the heart, your people will follow. This is Mark C. Crowley signing off for now. 